Good morning, everybody. I see a lot of new faces. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Lori. My husband, Bill, and I lead a small group on Sunday morning. We have four kids and a passion for adoption. So if you ever want to talk about that, we'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. And so I'm going to read, uh, if you read with me, um, we're going to read today in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the... Actually, from that part. <laughs> here we go. I got you right here. <laughs> I can't remember that part. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you, are, you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks to, God. be to God. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. So uh, we did a lot better this week with that, right? <laughs> did a lot better. Um, a lot of things going on in the world this week. And, and a lot of them, like, just bombing our news feeds. Lots of things happening. Um, and with all of them, it's, it's really hard to manage the bandwidth of our attention, right? You have to, like, triage every message to say, okay, is this worthy of my attention? Is this something I need to be, like, panicked about? Because there's plenty of panic to go around in the world. Um, and... That word triage is a French word that, that means to sort things out. And so every time that people are coming to the ER right now, they're having to be triaged. They're having to decide who are we going to treat? How are we going to do it? So somebody that needs a few stitches, maybe he gets a little less attention than the guy with, the, with a gunshot to the chest, right? Like there, there has to be something where they're saying, what's most important? And the same thing is true for us as we consider what it means to, to uh, think about the gospel and what's most important to our faith. Now, if you can imagine all of these hospitals that are already like in the dilemma of, of triaging at the ER, and now with Hurricane Ida coming onto the coast, um, I, just, I want you to just pray for those people that are having to make really difficult decisions. And now on top of that, they're having to decide, do I evacuate? What do I do? And now um, they're in that place. And so for us today, how does that relate to the message? I, I, I do believe that Paul has done a bit of triage about what's essential to the gospel. What's the most important things? In 2005, Al Mohler applied the same principle of triage to theological issues. And he said, look, there's tier one issues. There's tier two issues like baptism, third tier issues like church government, how it should work. But there are like first priority issues when it comes to triage and theological issues. And the very message of the gospel, it's what's at stake, 
in this passage that we're going to deal with. So he's communicating, Paul is communicating with urgency, urgency, frustration, absolute astonishment that people could be so confused about what was essential to the message of the gospel in so short a period of time. And this idea that we would triage theological ideas is particularly hard in our culture. Now, I'm not just saying that because we live in the South and we've been exposed to lots of theological ideas. I'm saying any uh, objective truth, any truth assertion that says this is absolute, it's absolutely true in every situation, there's this growing sort of disdain for that type of idea. Like people are really offended. Uh, The truth has always been offensive. Like that's not a new idea but we're just much more easily offended these days, it seems. And in contrast with the idea that there is absolute truth, or there is something that we could objectively seek after, is this phrase, speak your truth. And it's become like one of the most popular mantras of our day. Speak your truth, speak your perspective, in other words. And so that's not truth, that's actually perspective. Speak your own truth is another way of saying like, have your opinions. But it's really easy to get confused. Just a a few years ago, Oprah Winfrey in her acceptance speech at the Golden Globe Awards, she said, the press needs to pursue absolute truth. And then right after that, she says, we all need to speak our truth. And she put these two ideas right next to each other with no sort of tension. Oh, look, I've got nothing against Oprah Winfrey, honestly. But the idea that an audience could hear both of those things and I go, wait, which one is it? Which should we pursue? Absolute truth or subjective opinions? Which one are we going to pursue? And that's the problem of our day. Leslie Newbigin says it this way. The relativism, which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what is true for me, is an evasion of the serious business of living. It's the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. It is a preliminary symptom of death. In other words, this idea that we can just have whatever's true for us is a symptom of death for our culture. And so we're all kind of like that fable of the blind men trying to figure out what the elephant is, right? Like, what is it? One's going to say one thing, some of the other. But Paul, in the midst of that, is saying, hey, I have sight, (laughs) And I know what it is, and I know what it isn't. And everyone can bring their opinions, but Paul is willing to be both offensive, exclusive, confrontational in the midst of a people that are desperately confused about what is essential to the gospel. And so I want to ask you before we even get into his confrontation in this passage, and I mean, he's offensive. He's not like tiptoeing around the issue that people are confused. Later in chapter three, he's like, you foolish Galatians, two times in that chapter. He's like, you guys are fools. What have you done? And I want to ask you before we consider what he's saying, what are we willing to be offensive about? What are we most convinced of? What could no one change your mind about right now? What are you absolutely convinced of? And I want to argue that it cannot be some subjective experience. There has to be something outside of your perspective and opinion that is absolutely true in order for us to have any conviction at all. So last week we did an intro into the book, and this week we get into this letter, Paul's confrontation 
of a real group of people from a real person, so it cannot mean something different to us than it meant to them. So we want to know, what does this mean? And I want to ask you to pray with me. God, show us what this meant for this group of people so that we could then say, okay, what does it mean for us? Because it can't mean something different. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, we ask for your grace, your presence, that you would powerfully bring this truth to us today that we would be glad recipients of it, that we'd be messengers of this truth, that we'd be fearless in the face of a culture that is so afraid of offense, so easily triggered. Father, I pray that you'd fill us with both grace and truth and that you'd use this time in your word to help us, to transform us, to make us more resembling of, of who you are and what you're like. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few things that we're going to see, really simple observations. First, Paul's confrontation of them, and then Paul's confidence to confront. He's saying, look, there's no other gospel. And then lastly, how did he get this kind of approval? He wasn't looking for the man's approval. He's looking for God's. We're going to look at all three of those. And first, Paul's confrontation happens in verse six. It says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you from the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. First, I want you to notice that he doesn't have a greeting here. So his greeting begins, and usually at, any, at the end of all of his greetings and his other epistles, he says, okay, this burst of prayer and thanksgiving. He's like, I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful for your faith. But in Galatians, he just skips over that thankful part. And he says, look, I am bewildered with you guys. I'm absolutely astounded, perplexed that you could, like, what are you thinking? Have you lost your minds? That's how he opens the letter. Like right after his greeting, he's going, what? You've quickly deserted and turned not from the message first. That is what they had deserted, but look at the verse. Who did they desert? It wasn't the truth. It was Jesus Christ himself. There was a person in play. You're deserting him who called you out of the grace by his grace. So from him, first thing I want you to notice about his confrontation is that they weren't just leaving the message, they were leaving Christ behind. Their need for him. So there's lots of good things that we could go after. Good and moral things. Lots of things that could distract us from the essential truth of the gospel. And the essential truth is a person. Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And this astounding part of his message, like the fact that he would say, I can't believe it. Like, I'm astonished. I'm bewildered. Um, there's a few places where I read the scriptures and this kind of imagery comes to mind. You ever hear the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, who's so hungry, okay? He is absolutely so hungry that he'd be willing to trade his birthright for a, for a bowl of soup, right? And you look at this story and you're like, this is confusing. Like, how could you give up everything that you own for this bowl of soup, this temporary comfort, this temporary satisfaction of your stomach? And it is astonishing, right? Like, you look at that story and you're like, that is bewildering. How could you do it? But then when the mirror gets turned on us, there's so many ways in which we've done the same thing. We leave what is better for what's temporary satisfying. In the same way, Jeremiah in chapter two, he's bringing this confrontation to God's people and he also is saying, speaking for the Lord, saying, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked 
Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. This is God's word to his people who'd abandoned him. Why was he shocked, appalled? Why was he encouraging God's people to be shocked and appalled? Here's why. For my people, the ones that belong to me, that were called by my grace, the people that belong to me, have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's so many similarities between this confrontation and Paul's. Because Paul's looking at him going, look, I can't believe you would abandon the good thing that is Jesus Christ for these things that maybe you thought could add on to your faith. They're broken cisterns. They hold no water. They hold no hope for you. So before, before Paul gets disturbed about them leaving orthodoxy, I want you to see that he, he's disturbed that they've left Christ himself. And Christ himself who called you. He didn't wait for you. He came with you with this message of love and affection and redemption. It's by his grace. That means he came to you by his power, not yours, not because you merited some type of favor, but because he gave it to you freely. And then again, he goes through the gospel over and over. It's in Christ Jesus. So all of the grace that God comes to you with was afforded to you because of Christ and his sacrifice. There's no other way to have this call of God on your life but by his mercy that we just sang about. That's why we're so surprised and shocked by his mercy, so overwhelmed by it that we'd sing praise the Lord because there was nothing that we did to somehow earn God being gracious. We didn't plead hard enough. We didn't ask for forgiveness long enough. He just gave it to us as a gift of his grace for anyone who would look to him in faith and repentance. And that is really good news that they've deserted. So Paul's correction points out who they're falling away from the person of Jesus, the person of God, and how he had come to them. And then he leans into this correction. He's saying, look, my confrontation is so strong, and he gives these three categories of people. If we, or an angel, or anyone comes to you with some other message. So first, we. He's saying, look, if one day in the future... I'm bringing some message to you and it does not resemble the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not listen to me. And I'm saying to you as Nathan, <laughs> if at some point in the future I come to you and, and, and we're friends and you're like, you know, I really trust that guy. He's been my pastor for years. And in some way, if I bring some up message other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm saying, do not listen to you. Do not listen to me. That's what Paul's saying. If at some point I get distracted from the clarity of this gospel, do not listen to me. Then he says, an angel, look, if any angel, look, you see an angelic being of light who comes to you in the woods and gives you some tablets to read, okay? If that happens, let them be accursed. Even if you have some supernatural experience that goes beyond what you could physically understand, He's saying, don't listen to them. In other words, he's saying, look, you could, you could be convinced that LDS Mormons are really, really good people, but they're getting their message from some angelic power. Let that messenger be accursed. Third group, anyone, anybody, <laughs> myself, angels, anybody else comes to you with some opposing message to the gospel, let them be accursed. Now, this is a real strong language. <laughs> Here's what he's saying. Here's what's at stake for these people. Hell, accursed means let them experience condemnation, 
if they bring anything else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, for all of us who see ourselves as missionaries, which should be everyone who's in Jesus, anyone, anybody who's a disciple of Jesus, what did he say to his disciples? Go and make other disciples. So all of us have this opportunity to bring this message of the gospel, and we should bring it with trembling. Not because other people might reject us, but because God puts his gospel on a first tier of triage for what is supposed to be presented to the world. That's what's at stake. So Paul's confrontation, he's confronting them, and he's so confident. Don't you want this kind of confidence? We'd be like, guys, stop being idiots. Don't, don't listen to this other message. How did he get that kind of confidence? Look at verse 7. He was convinced of this. Not that there is another one. There's no other message. That's what he's saying. There's no other gospel. But there's some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, I'm not confident because I'm a good messenger. I'm not confident because of my eloquence. In fact, he was very much self-aware in other places in the, in the New Testament where he's saying, look, there's other people who speak better than me. There are other people who have a better, more appealing way of talking. He's not confident because he's a good messenger. He's confident because he's convinced that there's not another message. There's nothing else that's going to redeem you. He was convinced of Jesus' words in John 14. Jesus said this to the man who wanted to be saved. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He was convinced of the exclusivity of this message. So much so that he would call out these other contrary gospels. And then he names in verses 8 and 9 those who would be opposed to it. And he gives their motive. Their message was to distort it and their outcome was to be a curse. And I want to just go through each of those things. First, their motive was to trouble you. In other words, they wanted to bring some unnecessary burden in addition to the gospel so that people could have these, like, not tears of what to believe, but tears of how to live, okay? That if you were living in some addition to the gospel, you were somehow a better kind of Christian than those who were just simply believing, they wanted to trouble you with unnecessary things. They wanted to add to what Christ had done. And then their message was to distort the gospel. You ever been around somebody and you walk away going, I don't even know what that means. You walk away more confused about the gospel than when you walked in the door and you're like, I'm not even sure if I'm, what, what does it mean to believe? They distorted the gospel in that way. And people would walk away from these messengers uneasy trying to add something so that they might be confident. And their outcome was to be a curse. Now, we need to hold it. This is a little sidebar, okay? I'm getting off message, but I'll just do it for a minute if you'll bear with me. First, we need to be the kind of people who hold tolerance in tension with intolerance. And here's what I mean. Outside of the church walls, there should be great tolerance. We should, we should be rejoicing that we live in a culture, in a nation where anyone can believe what they want to believe and they can say it out loud. We live with great freedom in this country. That's great news because we get to gather here and we're not afraid of being oppressed yet, okay? We're not afraid of people stopping this message, because we live in a place where there's great tolerance, and that is good, okay? But inside the church walls, there should be an intolerance for things that are untrue, okay? Great tolerance outside of these walls, intolerance inside of them. So Christians live with that kind of tension where we're like, no, we're actually sure of what we believe. 
Um, some, I like to, to consider it kind of like a funnel of belief, right? Up outside the funnel, you got people that believe whatever they want to, and it's great. And they can come to church here. Listen, if you came to this, this building today, you can still believe whatever you want to believe. In fact, we're really glad you're here if you do not believe the gospel of Jesus. We've been praying that you would arrive, and we've been praying that you would hear this message and respond to it, okay? We prayed for you before you got here this morning. Hope that didn't creep you out. We've been praying that people who do not yet believe would walk in these doors and hear the gospel. So outside the funnel, you got people who believe whatever they want to believe. Okay? Inside the funnel, you got church membership, and they just got this broadband. We believe the gospel, we believe the Bible, and then that funnel gets narrower and narrower. <laughs> when it comes to church leaders, we need to be able to defend the gospel like Paul is doing here. We've got to be able to say, no, 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 that's outside of the parameters. As you walk closer with Jesus, you should be able to hear things that are not the gospel and say, wait, wait, that doesn't, that doesn't pass the sniff test. That doesn't sound like the aroma of Jesus, right? Like something about this isn't right. You need to listen to things with this filter of saying, does this align with the truth of God's word? And as we grow in Christ, we grow in clarity and the ability to discern what is first tier disagreement, second tier, third tier, and know what we're going to argue about because a lot of things we're arguing about aren't worth it. But there's some things that are worth it, Okay. Within the body of Christ, there's things worthy of disagreement, and that's what Paul's doing. The only way that he's able to do this is that he's not looking to other people for approval, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Inside these walls, our members believe that Jesus is the only way, and we all agree on that, okay? The people who serve here are not just serving for the sake of this message and power. They're serving so that other people can come to faith in this gospel, that's why we're doing it. We're trying to worship Jesus with what we do and so that other people can hear the truth of this message. And our leaders not only believe it, but we're able to defend it. That's what we're trying to move towards as a church. And what I want you to know, if you're like, yeah, but what about love? What about like being loving? Here's what I want you to know. Love is not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of conflict. Love is the appropriation of the, the truth of who God is, the presence of God. And there's times when God agrees with people and he loves them, and there's times when he disagrees with them. And the most loving thing he can do is say, that's wrong. Okay? So for us, we want to have a biblical understanding of what love is. And Paul saying, I am bewildered at you folks, is not absent of love. He's not withholding love when he brings his confrontation. It is an expression of God's love through him. It, it's God's love that wins people back to obedience, that prays and pleads with one another to be faithful to Jesus Christ. That's what love looks like. It looks like the kind of confidence in the gospel where we're both full of grace and full of truth because that's how Jesus walked the earth. He walked around full of grace and truth. For the person who was condemned, he said, come to me. For those that were condemning, he said, go away. <laughs> you whitewashed tombs. And from all places, he was able to bring both confrontation and grace. And Paul's confidence is not just to present the truth, but to defend the truth from those that were to oppose it. Okay? His confidence was that this was the only message of truth. 
and to recognize the opposition to the gospel and to call it out, to confront those that were adding to it, to seek to destroy the progress that Christ had made in these, the life of these believers. And so what I want to ask you is, with what authority did Paul speak? Obviously, he was confident, right? And for some of you going, I don't have that kind of role in anybody's life, okay? You don't feel any kind of role like that. It's right for us to ask, by what authority should any person speak on these things? That's a good question. In fact, it it resembles what happens with Peter in Acts chapter 4. You guys know this story. Peter heals some people, and they're asking him, like, how did you do this? By what authority? In Acts chapter 4, he responds with this. He responds to the exclusivity of Jesus. And he says, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then the people looking on him, this is how they respond. Now, when, the, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. There's that word again. Everybody's surprised these days. Now, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That was the authority with which they wielded that kind of exclusive truth. They had been with the one who was exclusive. There's a certain kind of authority that just shuts the mouth of the enemy. And it only comes for those that are with Christ Jesus, that are one with him, being in his presence on a regular basis. It's not going to come through seminary education, though I'm not against it. It's not going to come from some place of moral superiority, though I'm not against your morals and ethics. That's great. It's not going to come with theological clarity. It comes with experiencing the living God. That's how this kind of authority and confidence comes. It comes from the knowledge and the experience of the Holy One, the one who changes everything. This kind of authority comes from the conviction that you believe that it's not just you that believes this, but God himself. That's where this kind of conviction and authority comes from. God himself confirms this to be true. And if you believe that, then you'll stand for anything that you're convinced that God is sure of, okay? So just as Paul stands with confidence, conviction, and incorrection, there have been many people who come after him who are no longer controlled by the desires of man and their own desires, but by the desires and convictions of the Holy Spirit. And that looks unique. In a world saying, hey, speak your own truth. Be you. You be you. The people who can navigate this world with conviction and confidence are those who are convinced of their approval, and that it doesn't come from what other people think of them, but who Christ is and what he's done. Look at verse 10. It says this. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, as we begin to wonder, how do we bring this message of the truth of the gospel into the world? Here's what I'd say. It's impossible to be seeking to please man and God at the same time. It's just impossible. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve both of them. That doesn't mean you can go out and just be rude. You can't just be mean. God's, God's nature and glory and character is so compelling that he's won some of us over. He's wooed us in. And we see his glorious nature, and we believe that those glorious traits are becoming glorious in everyone who believes. So Christians should be some of the most winsome people in the world. 
People should be able to look at our lives and say, that's compelling. That's beautiful. That looks transcendent of some other world. If, though, we're seeking to please men, and Paul's referencing his past. Look, if I were still trying to please men, then I couldn't be a servant of God. One of the most impactful books for me is this book by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. And he explains why we fear people so much. Why do we fear people so much? He gives these three reasons. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. Truth. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. Next slide. These three reasons have one bigger thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is more important and significant than God. And out of the fear of that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us how to feel, think, and do. It's one of the most important foundations to understanding who Paul is, why he brought this message, how we're going to work through the rest of this book, because he's saying right at the beginning, I'm not looking for you guys to be happy with me, okay? I'm looking for you to be just grounded foundationally on the truth of the gospel. That is what is utmost important. He's convinced of what God thinks of him, both about him and the world, and he brings that into the arena of his ministry. And he's saying, look, this is, this is most important. It's not what you think about me. If I were still trying to please man, I couldn't be a servant of God. Another quote from that book, which I really like, it says that anything that erodes the fear of God will intensify the fear of man. Anything in your life that diminishes God's voice, any distraction, is just going to promote the fear of man, which people are relentless. Y'all know that? Like, they are great friends, great spouses, great kids. People can be people, but they make lousy gods because because their expectations are always going to be shifting and changing. And God has made his expectation of us clear. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. And I'll give you the approval that you long for. I'll settle the deepest fears of your soul. And then you bring that kind of confidence in the world and people can really see the compelling nature of the gospel. And so I'm wrapping up, I promise. Last thing, two points and then we're gonna close. Okay, first, there is no other gospel. Whose gospel are we believing? That's the question I want you to ask yourself as you consider. If there is no other gospel, then what is the good news, the foundation of my life? Because look, hey, there's not just a literal storm coming. Jesus described it this way. There's going to be storms coming. And he said, you better have your life built on my words. Let it be built on my words. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he said this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. (laughs) Hey, I picked up this before I knew about Ida. (laughs) It's true. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came 
and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and a great and great was the fall of it. So I want to ask you, as you consider this truth, there is no other gospel. What's the foundation of your life? Because I can promise you the rain's coming. The storm is coming. It's going to shake you to your foundation. Whatever you're going to walk through or what you're walking through now, I promise you it will shake you down. And we desperately need to have just a clear understanding of what the foundation of, of who Christ is and what he's done underneath us because the times are coming. It's going to shake you down. So my prayer for us as a people is that we would be built on the words of who God is and how he works in the world and what he's done to redeem us, not on our own standing. Because one of the things that the storm will reveal to us is how insufficient all the other gospels are. Like if you're trusting, if you're trusting in your own self-development on your mindset training without, without the presence of God, if you're trusting in some form of therapy to save you, if you're trusting in anything else to deliver you outside of Jesus, and all of those things can be good things, but if the foundation isn't Jesus Christ, then the storm is going to come and it's going to knock the house down and great will be the fall of it. So what's your foundation built on? That's what's at stake. There's a storm coming. Every revival too, every single revival came from a rediscovery of the essential nature of the gospel and prayer. So my hope for us is that we would just discover the beautiful nature of the gospel, that it would transform us. And then the last question is this. Whose approval am I seeking? Who am I seeking to please? Is it your own expectations for yourself? Because that can be exhausting. Is it someone else's expectations of you? That's even more exhausting. Are you still trying to please men, as Paul said? I'm, if I were still trying to please men in his religious zeal, then he couldn't be a servant of Christ. We need people like this in our lives, too. We need people that can say, hey, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned about your foundation. That are close enough to say, you're abandoning your convictions about this. Who's going to warn you when you're being fickle about the gospel? Who's going to graciously be appalled and astounding when you forsake the gospel? We need people to be like that in our lives. And here's what it means. We need to be those kinds of people. And the only way that we will be those kinds of people within the context of this community of faith is if we're not looking to one another to fix what we don't know about ourselves, self-esteem and problems and all these things. If we're looking to God instead of one another, then we can be the kind of people that God's inviting us to be as servants to one another. But if you're looking to one another for one another's approval, it's just not going to work. We'll never play the roles as God's servants that he's inviting us to play. If we were looking to men for our approval, then we can't be a servant of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So, I don't know where you find yourself today. If you're kind of outside of that funnel of faith and you found yourself in the room, here's what I want you to know. The, the essence of the gospel is this, that God created everything, that he rules over everything perfectly, and he made all the rules for everything to, to work perfectly. 
And every person in this room have all fallen short of that design. Every single one of us. There's no one excluded from this. There's no one who belongs to Christ who think they're somehow better than this. Like we all come in desperate need of God's mercy. And we believe the response to that need has been greater than our need through Jesus Christ. That he suffered, he lived a perfect life. He suffered in our place for sins and that he freely offers himself and his sacrifice to everyone who believes. And so because there is no other gospel, I'm pleading with you to abandon all the other things that would say that they can solve all the problems of your life. This is the foundation. And nothing else is going to work if we don't have this underneath us. And if you're looking to, those, uh, to other people around you to determine who you are, I'm pleading with you to look to Christ for your approval and acceptance. Would you pray that with me as we close today? Father, I pray that that would be so of my own soul today. I know my own need is great. And I pray that any other message opposed to this gospel would be silenced. All the things pleading for our attention, for our affections. Pray that you'd help us to see the astonishing nature of abandoning you to pursue them. And I pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen.